Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Morning Navigator a daily newsletter written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. Now, we know that I would not accept a sponsorship for this podcast from a product that I could not endorse myself, and I do find this product to be really powerful. It's important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and you cannot do that without understanding the markets. Now, this is where The Morning Navigator comes in. If you're trying to find actionable trade ideas or simply educate yourself about the markets, then this publication will help you do both. Whether Tony writes about the Federal Reserve driving the stock market, Saudi Arabia affecting the price of oil, or why the software sector is breaking out, his hit ratio for filling me in on things I should know about is extremely high. Now, if you want to try out The Morning Navigator, then you can sign up for a free trial today at tgmacro.com. That is tgmacro.com. If you enjoy the free trial and want to subscribe to an annual plan, then you can get $100 off your first year of subscription by using the discount code ZUBI at checkout. You won't be disappointed, so go check it out and sign up for your free trial today at tgmacro.com. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a trainer and wellness coach, and she is also the manager of Candace Owens. And of course, this is Gina Florio. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zuby. Thanks so much for having me. You are most welcome. I feel like it's I feel like it's long overdue. We've been long overdue. On, we've been chatting on Twitter, and uh, you know we haven't actually had a chance to do this. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me so, too. Awesome. So tell everybody a little bit about who you are. Uh, sure. So I. It's funny we were just talking about this before. I just moved to Washington D.C., so I just started a, a kind of a new life here. Um, so for work, I, I manage Candace Owens' career. It's uh, sort of a new job. I've been working for her about two months now. Uh, we met because I was a guest on her podcast and we sort of hit it off and decided to work together. But right before that, I was a trainer and a wellness coach. 
Um, so I spent a couple of years in the fitness and the wellness space full time. And then before that is sort of when my life was very interesting. I was uh, an editor and a writer for mainstream media publications, mm -hmm. uh, what I call now fake news media. Oh, um, yeah. Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have a lot of stories there. Yep. So my life has has really shifted over the last three to four years. And um, I guess you could say I made a journey from the left to the right. Mm. And, um, and, and now I'm, I'm living a, a brand new life where um, I sort of regained my conservative values and had a really big shift politically and, and had to really rethink the way that I structured my own life and the viewpoint through which I saw the world. So that's where I'm at now. Um, and it's been a wild ride. Mm, mm. Yeah, awesome. So let, let's run it back a little bit. So tell us a little bit about um, like where you grew up and how you grew up. I noticed that you said there that you regained your conservative mm. values. So I'm assuming it's kind of been a, a back and forth rather than just a one way thing. But talk us through a little bit more about your, your childhood and growing up. Definitely. I had a, a very traditional, everyday American childhood. Mm -hmm. My life is, before I went to college, it was very all-American. Um, my mom is Korean. She immigrated here when she was in her mid-20s. My dad's Italian, but born and raised in America um, from New York. And I was born in San Diego, but I grew up in South Georgia. My parents okay. and I moved there when I was about five or six. So mm -hmm. Georgia is is really my home, South Georgia. And I, and I mean the deep South. I grew up in a really small town called Richmond Hill. Um, it's, I mean, you know, my town was so small. There was only one stoplight in my town growing up, probably about 17 churches within a seven mile radius. Mm -hmm. um, went to the same, same school from uh, kindergarten until I graduated high school, Richmond Hill Primary School, Richmond Hill Elementary School, Richmond Hill High School. So I grew up in the same town. Um, and it was a very like I said, traditional American upbringing. My parents are hardworking, uh, working class. Um, neither of my parents graduated from college and they really wanted to give me an education that they never had. Um, my parents are still married. They got married in 1980. They've, you know, still happily married and they were great, devoted, loving parents who were awesome. really dedicated to giving me everything that they, they wish they had growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, my, both of my parents come from very broken homes, broken families. Um, you know, they, they saw and experienced abuse mm. and they really decided to, they, they've said this to me before, they decided to break the cycle and, and really have a family that was um, cohesive and loving. And I'm an only child. Okay. So all of the attention was on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so, you know, growing up, I, I participated in a lot of after school activities. I played piano. I, I was a classical pianist. I even competed from a young age and I had a really lively childhood. Um, and growing up in the deep South, of course, we were sort of the odd family out. Mm. Um, you were either white or you were black mm -hmm. and anything sort of in between was seen to be very odd. And of course I, I experienced a few things here and there growing up of kids bullying me or calling me Chinese or asking if my mom could speak English. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was all basic kid stuff, just like a kid might get teased for being short or being tall. Yeah. Or being uh, kids are always going to find whatever is different and they'll pick always. that out and use that. So, yeah. And, and my parents told me that I remember complaining to my dad when I was a teenager, 14 or 15, 
saying things like, why are they staring at me? And my dad would be like, because you're different and because you're pretty and because people look at things that are different. So my parents never taught me that I was oppressed. Mm -hmm. They never told me I was a minority. Mm -hmm. They just told me that people react differently to different people. Yeah. So I, I grew up feeling, you know, pretty included. Of course I was excluded by certain groups or whatever, but I had a great childhood. Awesome. It all, all changed when I got to college. Oh, okay. Where did you go? I went to Emory university in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And yes. how, and tell, tell us how it changed. So I was indoctrinated before school even started. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'm here like I'm I'm not gonna send my kids to college <laughs> unless no. unless it like really changes. Yeah. You can't the system what's funny is that I went to college in 2011 and I think just in that year in, in 2011, 2012, mm -hmm. the diversity and inclusivity initiatives were just starting to really take mm. off. So there were a lot of programs at Emory called pre-orientation programs. So okay. the school, of course, they want you to be in the system. They want you to pay. So they had so many pre-orientation retreats and sort of events that you could do to get to know the other freshmen and, and get more introduced to Emory culture. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know what compelled me to sign up for this particular program, but my mom and I decided that it would be good for me. I think it was, I think it was actually, I forgot the name of it, but it was a diversity and inclusivity week sort of a, a retreat. That's how they catch you. Cause it's like, Oh, nobody can be against that. No, every nothing's wrong with diversity and inclusion and exactly. equality. Nothing what could wrong. go wrong? What could go wrong? I love that. I love that that acronym stands for die. Die. <laughs> diversity, inclusion, and equality. D I E. D I E. Yeah. yeah. It's very telling. <laughs> so I, you know, I signed up and the week before orientation, I moved into my dorm sort of early and then I went off to this retreat and there were a lot of people who were mixed race like me. I had never met anyone who was half Asian or mm. half anything really. You were either white or black growing up. You know, there were a couple of Indian kids at my high school. There were a couple more Asians as I was growing up, but they were full-blooded Asians. Mm -hmm. So then there just started a big discussion about um, being mixed race, uh, biracial. There were of course a lot of black students. There were a lot of Asians, a lot of Indians. Um, and then all of a sudden race and ethnicity became a thing to me. Okay. And just, just was, from being surrounded by these other people, you mean? Exactly. And from okay. this program, this, this entire program was, it was meant to, I'll say it more diplomatically, it was meant to highlight the differences mm -hmm. between ethnicities and between different races. But what it really did was taught us that minorities are oppressed and that mm. we are treated differently than white people. So and, I want, tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I, I mean, I went to, I went to university but I went from, I started 2004 and I graduated 2007. Mm -hmm. And out of the British universities, I think Oxford to this day still isn't too bad in this regard. But I think I, I was like one of the last kind of crop of people who totally missed the mm -hmm. sort of new age intersectional stuff that has now sort of become very commonplace in universities. But I hear stories about stuff like this. I've I've even seen people, uh, people have sent me stuff that they've had from university or stuff that they've seen their children in their schools being <laughs> indoctrinated with and stuff. But yeah. I'm curious as to what this one week course actually entailed. 
So I'll give you one great example. First okay. of all, I have to backtrack. I, I said 2011, I meant 2007. I'm so sorry. I graduated okay. from college 2011, but started gotcha. 07. Okay. Um, okay, so I'll give you an example, a very specific example I'll never forget. We okay. did this game called, it was just called the race game. Oh boy. That's all we were told. So <laughs> it all- this, this sounds like a clan movie. <laughs> <laughs> it all started in a very somber, way where we were all just instructed to walk into an auditorium. I forgot how many students we had, but you know, let's say like 50 to 80 students are mm -hmm. in this room and we were just given a few rules. Number one, stand side by side and hold hands with the two people next to you. Mm -hmm. And then another rule was no talking. And then the second rule was, um, don't let go of the people's hands next to you as much as you can help it. Okay. And that's all we were told. People were asking questions. They were like, what about this? And they said, just be quiet and just do the exercise. Okay, great. Then the leader of the program proceeded to read statements from a piece of paper with instructions. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. He said, if neither of your parents graduated from college, take two steps back. Oh gosh, I've seen this on YouTube. You've seen this, right? And oh, it, it, it became a thing. It was you know, very popular at the time. If... Um, if you have to drive 30 minutes or more to find a hairstylist that can cut and style your hair, take one step back. Mm -hmm. um, if your parents went to college, take one step forward. And so, you know, he's reading out all these statements and a lot of these apply to me because my parents didn't go to college. Um, you know, my dad was in the military. I actually don't even think my dad finished high school. So I think he got his GED. Um, you know, my mom's an immigrant. And so of course, if, if, you know, three or more members of your family are immigrants take two steps back or something. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking all the steps back. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think it was one person in front of me. I had to let go of their hand to okay. my left. And then another person maybe was sort of beside me. And so the whole auditorium is quiet. It's silent. And everyone is scattered across the room. A lot of people are forward, but a lot of people were more towards the back. And I remember mm -hmm. specifically, there were actually a couple of students who couldn't take steps back anymore because they were against the wall. Okay. So after he finished all the statements, some students were crying, of course. Oh, gosh. And then at the very end, he just said one statement. He said, now race to the front and touch the wall in front of you. And of course, the people in the front felt very uncomfortable doing that. So they just mm -hmm. sort of shuffled and looked around and walked towards the front, touched the yeah. wall. Some people in the back actually ran. Others were just confused and the whole thing ended. And we all sat in a circle and talked about our feelings for two hours. I cannot think of a worse idea. Like, <laughs> as I hear this, I'm just like, that is the worst, like for, for everybody, not just for the people at the back, not just for the people at front. I'm like, for everybody, this is just like, oh gosh. Like, it's, yeah. Some, it, of, these, it's some of these ideas, idea. some of these ideas, I mean, I know how they get approved because there's not much intellectual nor political diversity in academia to go, wait, hang on, that's, bad idea like don't do that um but it's just it does amaze me sometimes in the same way that you know when you get like a, a really really terrible movie like so 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 terrible mm. and you think who approved this like how mm -hmm. how did this how did this get through the different stages of funding and approval of the script and everything like that like when it's so terrible mm. and with this same thing i feel the same thing i'm like like who thought that would be a good idea to build cohesion and unity the obvious thing to me that that is going to do is it's going to create resentment and it's going to make people feel 
divided and it's going to make some people feel deserving and make some people feel undeserving. And mm-hmm. you're just going to literally just highlight, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I'm sure you feel the same way, but it, okay. it blows my mind that um, like I didn't experience any of that in university. And if I had, I probably would have been on day one and been like, um, this is weird. <laughs> like, I'd be like, I, I, don't, I don't like this. Like, this isn't how I grew up. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a very strange thing whenever you, you step back and see it from a more objective point of view. Mm. But I think for almost all of us, including myself, mm. it was the first time that many of us had felt a sense of community Okay. And when you put a group of 18 year olds in a space like this, that's emotionally charged where we're, we're pushed and encouraged to share very personal stories about our lives and our families and, mm. and our childhoods. And, and of course, none of this has anything to do with school, no. but what does this have to do with college? What does this have to do with the degree that I want to, you know, I originally went into college wanting to major in mathematics I was, okay. you know, I always loved math and I was great at math. Um, and of course, my mom being an Asian, she put me in a lot of after school programs and really, <laughs> really encouraged me to read a lot and, and, and do all of my homework. So I was a fantastic student. But you know, what's funny is that being involved with this diversity and inclusivity initiative, it completely changed not only my views of the world, but my academic path. Mm. You know, what I ended up majoring in, I ended up majoring in religious studies. Oh, really? I did. And then I okay. also, I mean, I was always going to double major as a classical pianist. I always planned to double major in piano performance. Um, but my first major, my primary major was going to be mathematics. Mm. And why, why I, did you change? I changed because I ended up spending the majority of my time outside of class with this group. Mm-hmm. And there was something about the influence of, um, you know, of the liberal arts of school and the sort of push to think more about social justice, you know, that it was all of a sudden so much more important than, than majoring in something that will give you a fantastic career mm. and that will put you on the right path to have, have a great life. I suddenly became obsessed with um, anything in terms of social justice. And then I became really interested in religion and religious studies because mm. in my mind back then, religion was the one thing that made it okay for people to kill other people. Oh, really? Okay. So you approached it almost from a a somewhat hostile perspective. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I remember taking classes on Buddhist studies and, and, and taking all these classes about how, how religion has, has not served the world which was a, a really big turn from, from my childhood. Um, you know, I, I didn't even get to mention that I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Protestant Christian church and my parents, okay. you know, I think my parents mostly took me to church because they wanted to raise me with a sense of moral order. They wanted me to have friends, um, you know, the right kind of friends. Um, but I was very active in church. I played piano in church. My dad was, he is an amazing singer. So we would do music together in the church, but, um, in college, I was taught to believe that especially Protestant Christianity was really the very thing that was the most oppressive and okay. <laughs> towards women, towards minorities. And, and that's is this, what, is this literally what they taught? I mean, it's, it's what, it's not explicitly what they taught, mm. but I do remember meeting with several professors outside of class where their personal views would okay. start to trickle in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they would do it in a very cunning way where they would stick to the text in class, but they would highly encourage office hours and 
you know, at, the, at very liberal arts colleges too, it's like, you know, you call your professor by your first name, you go to their house and have a cup of coffee, meet their cat, and you feel like you're, you know, part of, um, you know, part of academics. And so that's really when these viewpoints and opin opinions started to trickle in and significantly influence the way that I saw the world. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I, I hear a lot of stories like this, not so much from uh, people who have, I think the first person I've spoken to who got this from doing religious studies, but I have spoken to people who did women's studies, uh, sociology, of course, being a big one, um, and a few other sort of social sciences. So it's interesting that even on a religious studies course, that um, that whole sort of line of thinking, I don't know what to, what to really call it. Um, it's interesting. It, it seems like it's, it's just totally penetrated every area of academia now, pretty much. Even the hard sciences, like even, you know, physics and chemistry, stuff that you think would be totally immune Mm. to any kind of um, social justice indoctrination or intersectional theory or gender theory or whatever, like they're still managing to squeeze it now into some of these areas from what I've heard. Again, when I went to university, yeah, we weren't living in clown world yet. It was still like normal mm. world. And then there was that sort of shift, rift that happened in the matrix. Uh, and then uh, it's yeah. ever since then, it's just, it's just changed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true because I have a, a very good friend of mine who lives in Berkeley, right outside of San Francisco. He uh, he's a scientist. He I don't he must be late thirties, early forties. He's I think the director of a physics department at UC Berkeley. Okay. Um, and he and I, it's funny. He and I could not be more different in terms of our political views, but we are you know we're very close in the sense that we reject the madness of the left. Gotcha. And so he has been telling me, you know, he sometimes messages me from work and he's like, I'm in a meeting right now and we're talking about um, including more women in the science department. It's like our biggest priority is including more women and people of color. He presses the question, he <laughs> says, what does someone's gender or race have to do with them being an excellent scientist? And he's actually even posing simple questions like this. He's gotten into trouble. Like he's oh, of been, course. of course. And, and, and so now even in departments of science and physics, you're seeing this madness of prioritizing race and diversity above everything else. Mm. It's very, very, very bizarre. I think it's very sinister. Like, I don't know. I don't think everybody involved in it and who sort of spews the rhetoric has bad intentions or is being sinister at all. But I think that the sort of higher arena that it comes from, I do think that uh, they know what they're doing. And I don't think that the, I don't believe that the goal is, um, I don't know, I think, I think it's malicious. I don't think it's, I don't think the goal is to create unity mm. and compassion and kindness and understanding. I do think it's designed to tear down systems and create division and sow seeds of resentment. And that's what I'm seeing it doing disturbingly well to be honest with you yeah and and i think you nailed it on the head i think the left uh, it's its primary goal is chaos mm -hmm. is, is to break down everything that we know all the structures and all of the order that mm -hmm. we have followed and that we've benefited from as a society for thousands and thousands of years and they want to just tear it all down and create chaos and yeah. that is it's it's frightening it's it's a very scary thing to witness. Yeah. So following on from university, so you were there for how long? Four years? Four years. Graduated in four 2011. Years. Okay. And where was your mind at when you came out after four years of this? When I left, I, 
I, I, I honestly remember thinking to myself, I have no idea what to do next. And what could you possibly do with a religious studies degree? I, <laughs> what, I don't know. Become what a am I, <laughs> I going to do with that? <laughs> so you know what I ended up doing? I ended up applying for graduate school because I said to myself, I need to study a bit more and figure out what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I applied only to three theology schools and um, I got into Harvard and I studied master, I got a master of theological studies. Nice. And the program that I was in, it was, it's, it's kind of hard, hard to see because they leave you so much room and so much freedom to design your own coursework that you kind of end up with nothing at the end of your degree, mm. you know? And so I was studying everything from the U S prison system. I took a class called race ethics in the U S prison system. And this is course. in theology. This is in, yes, this is in theology. Okay, I don't understand the connection, but carry on. Exactly. And so, <laughs> and I remember, and of course, the whole premise of the class was white man bad. That's it. Oh yeah, of course. And, and then from that, I was taking classes on death and dying in literature. And we were talking about alternative forms of medicine, like plant medicine and ayahuasca and how that can, can assist with learning about life and death and especially assisting people to, you know, on the way out if they're terminally ill or something. So, mm. you know, all the classes I, were, I was taking were all over the place. And then it was a two-year program. It was a short program, just two years. 2013, I graduated. And then once again, I was left asking myself, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with this degree? Mm. And so what I did was I, um, I graduated and I ended up going to a yoga teacher training program. Where was this? Where were you at this time? Um, I, so I just left Boston. I went to LA for a nine-week intensive training program to become a yoga teacher because the only thing I loved and made sense was, was yoga. I was always into fitness. I was always very athletic, mm -hmm. um, played tennis as a teenager and um, always into sports. And so, you know, I really loved yoga and I just didn't know what to do with my degree. And I was honestly so sick of academia. I was still very leftist and liberal, mm -hmm. but I recognized that sitting in a classroom and talking about theory until we're blue in the face, what does it do for the world? Yeah. It doesn't do anything. And, Man, and I wish I wish I could have had this conversation with you ten years ago. I would have been like, "Yo, like, <laughs> I wish I would, I would save you this time." I'd be like, "Look, <laughs> like, <laughs> you would have been my fairy godfather. You would have rescued me." <laughs> yeah, I think there are people now, like younger people, who I've spoken to, who I do legitimately think I've kind of like saved from certain mm. things, and just been like, "Look, like, just trust me on this one. Don't yep. do that, or like, do that." Yeah. That's why I think millennials are, in a way, our generation is so screwed because we didn't have an older generation to give us this mm. advice. You know, when you think about the younger generation, especially kids in college now, they have us who have been through so much. We've been mm. through the system. We've, we are living examples of how the system, the leftist academic system will ruin your life. Mm. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm so, I can talk about that more too, but I'm so lucky that I was able to come back from the depths of leftism that, that, that I was stuck in. But, and that's why I think that, you know, as millennials, when we were in college, we didn't have an older generation that had gone through the same. So mm. that's why so many of us are lost. Yeah. Well, when they went through it, it was different. You know, the, firstly, the university was, was a lot cheaper. Um, mm. I mean, I don't know, in, in, not in the U S but I mean, even in the UK, I mean, university was, university was free up until, you know, free at the point of service, of course, nothing's free, but um, it, it was essentially free up until maybe the late 90s. Mm. And then 
when I was there. I mean, since I graduated, I think the average cost of university has tripled since I graduated. And I graduated wow. in 2007. So the Whoa. whole game, even since I left in that sort of 12-year space, it's changed very significantly, not just in terms of what they're teaching, but also the cost. So when you're sort of weighing up the pros and cons, it's a really different story if you talk, you know, if I talk to someone 10 years older than me who went to university essentially for free and they weren't teaching all of this nonsense, then yeah, universities obviously go, right? <laughs> like, why, why would you not? Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if I'm talking to someone who's like 15 or 16, especially if they're not super duper academic and they don't want to go into a really vocational field like medicine or law or something, I'm like, look, really have a thing. Before you put yourself in that level of debt, you have to really think about the opportunity cost here. Because yeah. if you're just going to go there and you're going to study um, almost anything ending in studies, to be honest with you. If you're gonna anything study, and everything. If you're going to study anything ending in studies, studies. then have a think about it uh, because you may come out with that degree and not be any better off than you in terms of employability than you were when you went in. And not only that, you will then have all of this debt which mm. and got to pay, pay back. So exactly. yeah, really, really think about it. If you, even if you, I'm like, look, even if you need to take like two years out to think yep. about it, do it. Yeah. yeah. I think we're now at a point where uh, this is a big statement, but I think any liberal arts degree today mm. is useless. I just, the, I think the only reason to go to school now is to go for a certain skill, math, computer science, engineering, yeah. or if you're going to be a doctor, you know, these are the, really the only reasons to go to school now. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about these majors, not to major, and I think about things like feminist dance theory. Dude, some of them are. Have you heard of feminist geography? Oh, no. Is that a thing? Yeah, there's oh. feminist geography. Um, there's, uh, what else did I see? I saw one that was like, it was like post-colonial queer theory or something like that. <laughs> Right, like, like the, it, it, it sounds like a joke. It sounds like something out of uh, the Babylon Bee or something. And I'm like, this is a legit, like my, my girlfriend did sociology and it was really funny because before she went to university, I was, I kept telling her like, be careful you don't get brainwashed. Be careful you don't get indoctrinated. Because I was, I was legitimately worried. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh gosh, my, my lovely, sweet girlfriend is going to go to university and study sociology and she's going to mm-hmm. come out like just... <laughs> Like <laughs> I, I, I was worried. I was genuinely worried. And, and she didn't understand why I was concerned because mm. she was like kind of now that she's been with me for a couple of years, she she understood like we talk about all this stuff. So she, mm. she gets where my head's at. And she's seen like the dark side of feminism and stuff. Um, you know, when we used to talk about feminism, she was really confused as to why I was hostile towards it. Cause she was like, it's just equality for men and women. I was like, babe, it's, mm. it's not like, no. it's not. <laughs> I was like, I was like, it, it's not. And she like, she, she just didn't understand it, but mm. it's just really funny when we talk now versus comparing to when we talked then she had one mod- module that was totally ridiculous, which was called a uh, doing gender. And it was just like all this gender theory stuff. And <sighs> yeah, but I can't believe people are paying to learn this. Because yeah. not even, I don't know, it's just, it's just madness. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's the thing. I can't believe people are paying to learn this. And, you know, I was, I was talking to someone about the so-called gender wage gap the other day. Oh, gosh. Right. And, and I think to myself, you know, women, if you want to close that pay gap, if you want to get paid more and earn more money, stop majoring in feminist dance theory, stop majoring in gender studies, and go learn how to code. I have a better theory. I have a better approach for what they can mm. do. They What's can that? identify as men. Oh, there you go. That's it. 
Checkmate. That's it. Done. Checkmate. If there's a gender pay gap and gender is a social construct and you you can switch between them, identify as a man and job done. You know more than anyone else what it's like to identify with the other side. Exactly. Of course. (laughs) I'm so in touch. (laughs) Woke. (laughs) So gender fluid. Um, Yeah. It's... I did actually post that up the other day and yeah, some people got angry at me, but no one could actually answer my question as to why that wasn't a viable solution. Yeah. I, you know, I asked this question as well. I I say no one has has been able to answer this. If gender is a social construct, why does anyone get a sex change operation? Why does anyone enroll in hormone therapy? Why, why do you have to change anything about your body if gender is just a social construct? You know, these are, these are questions that, Mm that we need to be asking. And, and of course, when you get the sort of angry feedback from that, their, their very first response is you're a transphobe, you're a bigot, <laughs> you're, you know, you're so hateful, but, but there's a huge difference between loving and accepting and caring for mm-hmm. trans people. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between that and then also just accepting all of these new ideologies that are thrown at us. When you think about it, they're all conflicting ideologies. Totally. Totally. None of them makes sense. Feminism and transgenderism cannot coexist. Oh no! And you're seeing that rift happen right now in feminism. And I is, wonder. Uh, and I wonder what's going to happen. I don't know. Especially mm. as you know, you're in fitness. I've been in fitness. I'm a jujitsu athlete. You know, when people tell me that gender is a social construct. The first thing I do is look around this gym, and I'm like, okay, if gender is a social construct, <laughs> why does this guy have to reduce probably? 60 percent of his strength <laughs> just to roll with me so i don't die yeah yeah you know, and I, I, I do the same when you know if a woman tells me that like it, it's it's not it's rare because i don't hang around people who are that ridiculous but i'm like okay like let's arm wrestle let's do a push-up competition Let, let's you you name that you name the strength-based event and let's, let's go it. like <laughs> let's, let, let, let's go like i'm i'm ready like let, let's go And, you know, I I think about it and I I always ask myself, I don't know why people don't want to talk about the incredible differences between men and women. I think it's so fascinating. I think it's so beautiful. Of course, the physical differences, but our personality differences. I mean, the way our bodies function, it's just, it's truly an incredible, beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why anybody would want to throw that out the window. I mean, even the way that I would train my clients, you know, the way that women respond to different types of strength training mm-hmm. versus the way that men respond to it. You know, a small example is like if a woman wants to be able to do a chest to bar pull up strict, yeah. the way that her programming goes, women in my experience and a lot of people that I've worked with their experience to women respond more to higher volume mm-hmm. and slightly lower intensity. Mm-hmm. Whereas men respond much better to higher intensity and maybe lower volume. You know, and see these little things, the way that we see that men and women are so different and it's incredible, it's fascinating, and people actually get offended by it. Do you know what, do you know what I find funniest about this whole thing is how you've got like a segment of the population now who don't just believe, but will attack you for not believing stuff that they didn't believe five years ago. Mm-hmm. That, that's, the, that's the thing I find weirdest. When I, when I do come across people, it is primarily online. When I do come across people who are espousing some of these beliefs, I'm like, did you believe this in 2009? Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. It's like, what changed? You know what I mean? Like, what happened? Like, I, I haven't changed. My views, I've been like this <laughs> since I was like 10. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I haven't moved. 
all that's happened is like the world has shifted around me to the stage where like I've probably changed my view on like three big issues or something like mm. the past 20 years. And like I haven't become more right wing or more conservative or whatever. I'm just kind of sitting there and the world is just running away in this direction. And I'm just like, um, what? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just believing what y'all believed not so long ago in terms of American politics. The other day I saw this video of, um, of uh, some speeches. It was a collection of clips from Obama from maybe like 2005 to 2010. And he sounds like a straight Republican. Mm, wow. He sounds, like a, yeah. he sounds like a Republican. Yeah, yeah <laughs> straight up. I, I was just listening to it and I was like, okay, this is, this is good evidence that I am not the one who is moving here because your guy, <laughs> like his rhetoric sounds almost, like when he's talking about illegal immigration, when he's talking about defunding Planned Parenthood, yeah. when he's talking about uh, gun rights, he sounds like a Republican. And I'm just like, wow. And then you compare it to what they're saying these days. I'm not the one going crazy here. I'm stable. You just have to wonder how dumb does the media think we are that we're going to believe all of the things they're trying to make us believe. You know, how dumb do you think we are that we're not going to see that Obama said all of these things just, you know, a little over 10 years ago. I remember, I, similarly, I was watching a video when he was talking about border control and he was talking about yeah. illegal immigration. Yeah. And he sounded way more right than, than Trump is. He was yeah. way more conservative. <laughs> like I saw one where he was like, he's like, if you plan to cross the border illegally, it just got harder for you. Yeah, exactly. And he says that. And he's like, he's like, you're going to have to learn English. He says that you're going to have to learn English. Yes, that's the you're one. I saw that. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then it was juxtaposed with uh, the Democratic candidates in the debate, you know, when they were speaking Spanish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. The terrible Spanish. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. This is so funny. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's and, and you know having been in media, it's it's a good segue into me telling you more about what my life yeah, is like in media do. and the job was like. Okay. You know, we it, it can't be underplay the level of fake news that is being produced by these mainstream media publications. So one of the companies I worked for, um, it was one of the top fifty websites visited in the world. You know, like, that's how much traffic we got. We had so much traffic, and we would sit down the team would sit down and start with a headline. That's how we would start to construct really? an article. We would start with a headline because, and I have to explain this to so many people because they don't really understand it. How do these publications make money? You know, when you break it down, their main source of revenue is clicks and advertisements, right? Yeah. It's all about advertisements. That's how they make money. So in order for more people to purchase, more companies to purchase ads so they can make money off of advertisements, we have to be we have to be accomplishing a specific number of clicks and views every single week, every single month, every single day. That's what our goal is to get clicks and views, right? Because very few publications are now on a subscription model. I think New York times and wall street journal, they're on subscription, but you know, you still get 10 free articles a month, but the majority of other mainstream media publications, they get their revenue from advertisements. So, the main goal of pretty much every media company I ever worked for, the main goal was to keep the advertisers happy. Mm -hmm. That is something that the American people need to know and understand is that it is our best interest. It, they don't care about our interests. They, oh, no. they could care less. All they care about is what we click on. So that's why we start with a headline. We go back and we look at you know, all the traffic reports. What did people click on? What did people actually spend the most time viewing? 
And then from there, we'll come up with a similar headline, a very similar headline, and then we'll work from there. That's how we'll create the content. That in and of itself, if more people knew that, I think they would think very differently about the world and the machine of media. Yeah. And then even from there, we would we had the, the most recent media company I worked for before I left, we had a team of people that would just monitor Trump's tweets. I'm not surprised. And, and they would just wait. They yeah. would just wait for something to pounce on. And it's, it's never an issue. It's never a matter of what he said or what the issue actually was. It was just a matter of orange man bad. <laughs> make him look bad and make Hillary Clinton look great. Yeah. That's it. That's what, all we, that's all we cared about. And when, when were you, when did you work for in the media? What years? So from about, so I quit in 2018. So very okay. recently. And okay, then okay. I started working about 2013, mm. 2013, 2014. And in the first few years I was working remotely as a writer. And then after that, when I moved back to the States, um, cause I lived overseas for a little while. When I moved back to the States, I um, started working full time as an editor. Okay. And so what are your top three most ridiculous articles that you wrote in hindsight? Oh gosh, you should <laughs> in one. Okay. In one way, <laughs> it's really embarrassing, <laughs> but in another way, I'm, I'm actually really proud of my paper trail because I, I am living proof that if I can come back from the <laughs> radical left, anybody can okay the most okay i'll tell you the most one of the most ridiculous things i ever wrote and okay. that <laughs> so when candace and i decided to to work together um she said that she and her husband george had like the best time they just sat down and googled me and read all of my stuff and one of the things i wrote was that the yoga community was neglecting people of color It is though, they haven't tried to pull me in yet, so. <laughs> so that was another one. Um, I, wrote a, I wrote a great one about, it was right at the start of- Isn't yoga made by people of color? I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Surely the whole yoga thing in the US is cultural appropriation anyway. Oh my gosh. It's, and okay, another great one I wrote was <laughs> right at the start of Trump's presidency, I wrote about how Trump's presidency in and of itself was creating a mental health issue which in is America, correct. which that's is correct. correct. That's correct. But the, but the other way, <laughs> that, that is totally correct. Trump derangement syndrome is real. But yeah, I mean, no, it, I, you it, know, it is very real. I posed the idea that people, that suicide rates were going up and that people were more anxious and depressed and, and thinking about ending their life simply because this racist was our president. I mean, I, I was as much of a Trump hater as any other pussy hat wearer, you know? Wow. It was just so I, I came, I, I really shifted. I came yeah. a big way, but you know, the kind of content I would just sit and think about all mm. the ways I could write personal essays about how I was, how I was oppressed. That, that's, that's what I used to do. You know, I used to, I used to carve out time every week to think about how can I tell my story more? How can I, um, how can I display and show my, my lifelong battle of oppression and discrimination? And you, were, you were in San Francisco at this time. So I was, I moved to San Francisco in 2017. Oh, okay. Okay. So before that I was traveling a lot. I was living that very classic wandering millennial life, mm -hmm. um, lived in South America for a while. I was in Australia. I spent some time in Thailand and I was just sort of going from place to place because at the time, of course I hated America, mm. even though, 
even though American capitalism was allowing me to work remotely and still make excellent money living, you know, in a developing country. So I, I hated America and I used to travel around and talk horrible things about the country that I was born and raised in. And, you know, and I'd say that's probably one of the primary things that college does to you. It teaches you how to hate America. Wow. That's, <laughs> I, I find so many parts of it funny. It's hilarious. Um, and it, it's funny because I've spoken to, this does seem to be like a very unidirectional flow. Um, I know so many n- people who are now conservative who are former liberals. And I don't think I know anyone the other way around. And I know a lot of people. <laughs> I'm going to try to, I'm going to post on Twitter. I am going to try to find that elusive person who like. Yeah. I've never met a person who's gone from yeah. the right to the left either, ever. I, I, I've met people who have done it. Like if they were sort of raised in a very conservative household and then they sort of kind of like your story. And then they sort of went sure. left when they were young adults and sure. then they went back. But I've never met someone who say was a conservative in, in their thirties, let me say. Mm. Maybe up and maybe up until late twenties, thirties, and then they shifted to being a liberal or being a socialist or anything like that. I've I've never, honestly, I've never come across that. Neither um, have I. But I'm curious. I'll I'll try to find that person and get that elusive person on my podcast, maybe. Because I mean, when you really think about it, socialism sounds great to children. It does. Yeah. It sounds great to teenagers. Free stuff, awesome. I don't have to pay for school, great. Yeah. Free healthcare, awesome. You're going to yeah. provide housing for me, even better. Yep. You know, it, it sounds so great to the young, naive mind, mm-hmm. which is why colleges prey on these young teenagers because they're they're so malleable at that age. Mm. Sorry, Corbin. Sorry, Bernie. Um, but I'm just kind of like, look, if if anybody should have had time to work out why this is not sort of feasible, <laughs> um, then I would, I would have thought it would be you. So tell, tell us a little bit about the um, awakening, because I mean, you said you were working up in the media up until 2018, and you were super duper anti-Trump. And now, I mean, it's, this is just a little bit more than one year later. So what happened in that short space of time that's led to this 180? Mm. I was actually married uh, when I was, I got married when I was 28. Um, and, you know, as I think as someone on the left, I, I did not recognize the sanctity of marriage and really the the importance of marriage. You know, my, my ex-husband and I got married really quickly. We went to college together. We stayed friends. And I don't know exactly what compelled us to get married so quickly, but I think it was that we had sort of objectively realized that marriage is great in many ways and that mm-hmm. it produces, you know, really happy, thriving children. Um, and marriage is great for society. So we were like, all right, let's do it. Let's get married. I think we were both quite lonely and living lives that were pretty detached from any community. So we got married. Um, and it was actually my husband at the time who asked for a favor. He said, will you sit down and watch one of President Trump's speeches unedited from start to finish with me and around that time we had started to talk a little bit about um he had some conservative views he was you know he's was always very pro-life and that was triggering for me (laughs) as a leftist feminist um but I don't know what it was what compelled me to say yes but I said yes because I trusted him you know we've been friends for so long and um And even though we hadn't been married for very long, I was like, fine, I'll watch it with you. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what speech it was. I think 
it was in Ohio. I can't, the only way I can, I can explain it is this. When I heard Trump speak about 30 minutes into the speech, I had an overwhelming feeling of safety. Like America was safe with him. And I can't explain it. I don't know what it was, but I remember watching his speech and thinking to myself, this is not at all, not at all the man that, that I know from the media. And I was working as an editor at the time in a media company in San Francisco. And of course, everyone at the office absolutely hated him and they always talked trash about him. Yeah, San Francisco is very one way. Oh yeah, it's, it's the most intolerant place I've ever been. It's the only place I've been in an argument with a, a political argument with an Uber driver. <laughs> there you go, that's San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I watched, his, I watched President Trump speak and, and his, I could, you could see and hear and feel his, his love of the working class. Mm. And he was on the American side, he, was, um, he, was, he just loves America. And there was something about it that really, it made me think about my parents and my parents have, you know, they had nobody help them growing up and and they really, they, they actually pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made it, Mm. you know, you know, I don't come from a wealthy family, but I come from an incredible, loving, caring family that my parents provided everything I needed growing up. And that was far more important to anybody listening, by the way, far more important. That was, you know, if it weren't for this incredible childhood and foundation I had, I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I would have never come back to these values today if it weren't for my parents. And so when I heard him speak, I thought about my dad and my mom and, and he was speaking to them. You know, he like, those are the people that I could see he really cared about. And mm. these are the people he wanted to put first. And from that point on, I went down a deep dive. I okay. My, my husband at the time introduced me to the Rubin Report. I was listening to Dave Rubin like it was my religion every single day. Okay. And then I'll never forget, I think it was, I think it was in 2018 when Candace Owens had her first interview with Dave Rubin. Okay. And the episode was called My Journey from Left to Right, Candace Owens, Red Pill Black, whatever yeah, her YouTube yeah. channel was at the time. And I watched that entire episode like jaw dropped <laughs> to the floor. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> When I, when the episode ended, I looked at my husband at the time and I said, I think I've just been baptized. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I swear I said that to him verbatim. And after I saw that episode with Candace, I just, you know, I was listening to everything. I was listening to a ton of Michael Knowles. He was a really big influence for me. Okay. Um, and then I discovered you and I was watching all of these people online talk about these issues with logic and reason and and with rationality and things started to change. And I started to watch a lot of Trump speeches unedited from start to finish. And I really saw in that moment that my job and and the industry that I worked in was a complete lie and fabrication and it was doing more of a disservice to Americans than anything else. And then shortly after that, I quit. Wow, what did that feel like? It was it was liberating, of course, but it was also very scary because yeah. I remember walking into the office the day after I watched Candace Owens on the Rubin Report, and I felt like I had to hide. I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm in a room full of editors who are so far on the left. Mm. And then I discovered, what's really funny is I discovered this lovely, this lovely woman who was working at the office with me. She was a couple years younger than I was, and somehow we got on the subject of Dave Rubin and Dinesh D'Souza, and she leaned into me and she said, I am terrified that our boss will find out that I'm a registered Republican. 
And I was like, and then it, it clicked how backwards the world was wow. that a, a woman who is a fantastic employee, she does her job really well, that she is terrified oh, that our boss will find out what her political affiliation is. Gina, and, it, run, it runs deep. It runs deep. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the world of entertainment and mm. it runs, it runs so much. Like you already know that, that it's there. I, I will tell you it, it's runs so much deeper than you probably even imagine. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, it, no. runs, it runs really both in the UK and in the U S I really learned that because in 2019, because I, grew so much in 2019 in terms of the amount of people who know me. Like I went from this time last year across all social media, I had 45,000 followers and I've now got like 260,000 or something. Wow. So, and of course I had the viral deadlift tweet and yep. you no know, lots. So I became like a little bit of a magnet for, shall we say closet conservatives or even yeah. closet libertarians or even, even liberals who are just non non-left progressive liberals right yep in in hollywood in comedy in music i'm mm. talking other artists other musicians like all in the dms right people dming me like yo man really? it's so deep like wow. and then people were sharing stories and stuff like you know and, and so many of them were like yeah like don't you know don't share this so don't, wow. don't put your name out there actors upcoming actors upcoming comedians like i love what you're doing i love what you're saying i agree with so much of it but I couldn't do what you're doing. Like you're so brave. Like I'd be worried about losing jobs. I'd be worried about this. I talked to somebody who lost, um, I talked to someone who's Hollywood, Hollywood actor, um, been in some, been in some big movies. Um, he lost his, he lost his agent. He lost his manager all in the space of like two weeks what? because they found out that he had some, had some con conservative views I talked oh to someone gosh. else who almost lost their job because their parents voted for Trump. What? The people at work found out that, and this is a guy who's quite senior in the organization too. His parents voted for Trump. And so he was under threat. It's crazy. It's really bad. It's the same in, it's the same in the UK. It's the same in um, the world of like book publishing, like book publishing, the literary world. Exact same thing. I was talking to a woman and she said that um, her boss told her that they would never knowingly publish a book by an author that they know is pro-life. <gasps> so oh the, the, the book publishing company, if they knew that an art, that an author was pro-life, even I'm not even saying a pro-life book, but if they knew that the author held that view, then they, her boss told her that they wouldn't, they wouldn't publish the book over a hundred DMS and emails last year of very similar stories, people in tech, people in music, comedy, acting, book publishing, like all these different sectors. Mm. Um, like I knew it was, I knew it was kind of bad mm. based on, you know, my own experiences and being, dare I say the only rapper in the UK who's not like, who's mm. like openly not a leftist, <laughs> right? Like I, I think I'm literally the only one. Yeah. Um, and so sort of seeing that, like I, I knew, okay, there's like, there's definitely a strong skew here, but I didn't realize just how much it was people almost like in hostage situations. Yeah. And that's why I refuse to use the word progressive when it comes <laughs> to the left, because it is the most regressive thing. Because, yeah. you know, you, you saying this and even the very few experiences I've had on a smaller scale, people on Instagram from 
the Bay Area mm. will message me and say, listen, on the down low, <laughs> <laughs> I am 100% supportive of this. I'm also pro-life. You know, I'm also a Trump supporter. I've had people whisper to me in public. You know, so on a smaller scale, I've experienced that too. And so when I hear all these stories, I think to myself, it sounds like we're in some sort of dystopian novel where we're we're being silenced and we're being we're the ones who are being discriminated against mm -hmm. simply because of what we believe mm -hmm. and that is so regressive and what's weird about it is that the the weirdest thing about it and this is why i do encourage people to speak up and speak out more is because we're also the majority <laughs> this is we why are. it's this this is why it's so crazy. I mean, in the UK, we've just had the election and it was a complete conservative blowout. Like yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't even close. And so I've got a friend who um, is more left-leaning. He, he, he votes labor, but he's like, a, you know, a normal working class left-leaning guy, not like a intersectional pyramid crazy guy. Okay. And he was on the, he was on the London underground and there was um, there was a guy on the train. This is the day after the election, and he was on the train. He filmed this. There was a guy on the train. This whole story's crazy. There was a guy on the train who, uh, on the carriage, he said, "Who in here voted Tory? Right? Who in here voted Conservative?" And there was one guy who had the balls to be like, "Yeah, I did." Okay. And there's like back and forth verbal altercation commences between these two guys. Eventually, the, the train stops. The guy who started the thing gets off with his girlfriend. And then he comes back in and punches the guy. No way. Okay. My friend, unfortunately, stopped filming just as the guy got off the train because he thought oh, it was over. Yeah, but he yeah. told me, he told me he came back in and punched the guy who voted conservative. Now, this isn't the craziest thing. My friend now was afraid to upload this video because he knew it would piss off the people on his side and he was worried about the career repercussions of posting a video of somebody somebody else, else. exactly yeah wow. how, cra how crazy is that so he didn't so he so not only the event happening but the fact that my friend was like man look i i can't share this because yeah i'm gonna then face heat. So you're showing like a blatant injustice. You're showing an assault, an assault on the London train station. Uh, of a stranger. Of a stranger, but because of the political orientations, yep. you're worried about sharing this because you're worried about the response from your own side. Yeah. How crazy is that? And see, this is, so I was, <laughs> I was terrified of this happening to me. Whenever I left media, I decided to go into fitness mm. and it's kind of another conversation, but I think there are actually a lot of parallels between conservatism and, and fitness because, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's all based on merit, especially when it comes to sports. You know, it doesn't matter where you're from or, you know, what your, what your gender or your race mm -hmm. or ethnicity is. You can, you can make it if you put in the work enough, right? Mm -hmm. Fitness, sports, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I got into fitness and, you know, I was training full time and I was working at one of the best gyms in San Francisco, voted best gym 13, 14 years in a row. Nice. Every single day, terrified when I walked into that gym that somebody would somehow know that I'm conservative. Terrified. And then another, another gym that I was still working at part-time, it was more of a boutique fitness studio teaching kind of classes. They unceremoniously let me go. 
And it was shortly after I posted a criticism of the body positivity movement on my Instagram. Because, okay. because, because whenever I, whenever I posted things on my Instagram, you know, I, I just sort of come back to the conservative side and, but I was in fitness and I thought to myself, okay, posting about body positivity and, and just stating the fact that obesity is the number one killer of Americans today and over 30, 35% of Americans are obese. Mm-hmm. I said, how could that possibly be, you know, interpreted as conservative, right? I was like, hate I'm going to speak up about this. <laughs> hate facts. Yep. So I'm going to speak up about this anyway. But it was, it just happened to be, I posted that, that picture on, on my Instagram and one of the coaches from this gym two of the coaches commented and left like long paragraphs, like wanting to argue with people, wanting to argue with me. And then some of my followers chimed in in support of what I said, because I simply (laughs) said that being obese is really bad for you. Yeah. And and that the more, as a fitness person, and the more that we coddle it and the more that we glamorize and fetishize and glorify obesity as some sort of, um, you know, status and some sort of beautiful status, the, the more disservice we're doing to the obese Americans that are dying. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, two of the coaches commented. And then very shortly after that, the owner of the gym called me in and said, the students aren't liking your classes anymore. And I asked, I asked for the reviews because we've had instances before where, you know, somebody complained and the owner would be like, here's a review. Let's go over it together. And so I asked him for the reviews and he said, no, essentially. And I said, well, can you give me some specific examples of what people have said? And he kept saying, no, they just don't like your classes. They just don't like classes. And I just tossed my hands up and be like, okay, all right. So we parted ways, but it was so close to that body positivity post that I I just, you can't, you can't throw that out the window. Like it had to be connected. Mm. It's, it is nuts. Like I do understand people's fear, but I feel like really what needs to happen is um, here, maybe, maybe we can like coordinate this globally, Gina. We need like a day where everybody like comes out. There needs to be like a, you know, how the LGBT stuff always have these like coming out days. Yeah. There needs to be this sort of like quiet concern, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. like, like, like just coming out day of just like, oh, okay, look, <laughs> half the population actually holds these views. Actually more than half the population holds yep. most of these views. Um, and it's not crazy to think that, you know, men and women are different and it's not crazy to think that socialism is a bad idea. And it's not crazy to think that we shouldn't be promoting obesity and transitioning our children and stuff like these are not fringe views. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's what's needed. I almost think like the people are worried about being singled out. This is what I'm noticing. People are really worried about being singled out. Mm -hmm. I think that Fortunately, due to my own personality and the fact that I'm self-employed, like I don't care. Like I just do not. If I think it and I feel it and I want to say it, I will say it. Like I, I don't go out of my way to be mean or cruel to anybody, not at all. But if I think something, I'm not. It's not political correctness is not going to stop me from saying it. Yeah. Um, whereas that's not the case with most people. So I know even like with what we do, part of the value of it is you're actually speaking for the people who are afraid to like you i'm sure you see this right you'll get dms on instagram on twitter for like you may say something and there will be some people who don't even want to like it or comment on it because they're yeah. worried i've had people be like yeah like i can't retweet any of your tweets because <laughs> because, <laughs> because people will like come after them 
Yeah. Oh, but I just want to let you know, I love what you're saying. Keep at it. And it's like, dude, they're afraid to even like my tweet because the like may show up and one of their friends will see, hmm, how come they liked it? You saw what happened to, to uh, you, you must have seen that whole uh, J.K. Rowling situation. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And, did and you then see what Mark Hamill? With the yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, how could you like this tweet? Oh my gosh! And that was what just kind like of a troll random... found that. <laughs> Honestly, and it was just a random person too. And he was yeah. like immediately, he immediately was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so so sorry." Like, and I was just like, "Dude, I thought you were Luke's. Wasn't he Luke Skywalker?" Yeah, for liking a tweet. For liking a tweet, like, he had to sad. profusely apologize. Got like this grown man. You got Luke Skywalker groveling to a random Twitter user because he liked a tweet that was already not controversial to begin with. This, I think this kind of happened to Ice-T as well. Oh, yeah. I can't, okay, it, I Oh, it was the, the Q thing, the Q yes. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he liked a tweet and then somebody, <laughs> oh, so funny, and somebody, that, you know, they were trying to slam him on Twitter and he retweeted and he said, eat a dick. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw that. I saw that, I was like, I was like, yes, yeah. Ice-T, yeah. yes, yes. Like, this is, this is how you respond. It was great. You know, he just didn't, he didn't, he didn't care. He didn't care at all. But, but that's, I mean, that's where we're at now is that people feel like when they come out solo, they, they make themselves a target. Yeah. And the truth is, like you said, we are the majority. Mm -hmm. What what people hate to hear, the majority of Americans are pro-life. The majority of Americans believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. The majority of Americans are Christian. They believe in God. And, And when you really think about it, these are the people that are being so, so silenced. And I think mm. this is one of, the, not think, but of course, this is one of the reasons why they all hate Trump so badly is because he represents this middle America working class mm. that they may not be on Twitter all the time because, you know, they're working different jobs, different hours, but they're the ones that are, that are being silenced yeah. and ignored, but they're the majority. They're us. Yeah, no, it's, and it's interesting that it takes a guy like Trump who on paper is very, very, you know, is in a whole different stratosphere to the average American, you know, being, being a billionaire and everything. But um, the way I look at him is he's, he's an elite, but he's not an elitist, mm. which is why working class people relate to him, you know, large swathes of American evangelical Christians relate to him. A lot of people who, again, you know, with, uh, with someone like him, like I get, I get a lot of questions because I'm not even like a, I wouldn't even classify myself as a, as a Trump supporter, but I'm very, I try to be very like fair to him. And I think he's, I think he is doing a good job in terms of actually being a president for the most part. Um, and I, I focus very much on like the policies and the positions and the actual results, not so much like, Oh, but, but Zuby, he tweeted this. I'm like, I don't care. I, I don't, I, if you think, I'm like, yeah, he says some silly stuff, but like, firstly, I think it's half of it. I think is hilarious. Um, I just enjoy the show. And then also I'm just like, look, in terms of what he actually stands for and what he stands against, that's the guy, man. Like you, you, you may not like this and you may not like that. You may not like that. You know, I've seen, uh, in, in the States, for example, lots of people are, there even seems to be that kind of split in the Christian community of like, mm-hmm. oh, should we should we support Trump or whatever? And people are like, yeah, you know, he's, he's had chil- children from different women. He's uh, on his third marriage. He's, he said this, he's done this, he's done this. And it's like, yo, I get that. But if you look at what his actual stances are, 
versus his opposition who may appear on the surface to be more clean cuts. If you look at what they're actually pushing, if you look at what they're actually saying with regards to immigration, with regards to abortion, with regards to uh, gender, marriage, like all these religion itself, all of these different policies, let alone, you know, someone who's very like second amendment and they're coming with all these threats about that. To me, this is not a, this is not a hard decision. It's not, it's not a perfect decision, but how, I, can't, I can't vote for someone who thinks abortion should be legal up to birth. Yeah, yeah. I, how, exactly. how, everything else is almost out the window at that point. You see what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's like yeah. I don't care if he said something offensive on Twitter. It's like he doesn't support that. Like that is, that's so beyond the pale to me, to me personally. Of course, not everyone agrees with that, but I'm like, no, that's, to me, that is like beyond the pale. Like if someone is supporting that, then the other side would have to be like the devil for me to, to, to go there. Cause I'm just like, no, nah, like, that's not, that's not cool. Like I, they if they're doing that and then they're, I don't care what they say about healthcare. I don't care what they say about you. You, you got to see what I mean. It's just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, at that stage, I'm just kind of like, no, nah, like that's not a, the order I put the importance of stuff in. Right. Your, your, your rhetoric on Twitter is not the top thing. You're, not at all. You know, it's, it's not the top value. It's like, Oh, but Zuby, he said that. I'm like, I don't care like maybe he shouldn't have said it but whatever um and half of it is just media distraction anyway so Mm -hmm. it's like yeah but he's done this he's done that he's done that he's done that like i don't know it's a complicated one but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens later this year i you know i wonder i i i don't want to you know jinx it but i think he'll he'll win again in a landslide and you know i think in in some ways of course i do wish that he would just put down his phone and tweet less. But in, in, a, in another way, I think that his his lack of filter uh-huh. and his intention to not be politically correct is what everyday Americans love about him the most. It does. And, and, you know, when you see, if you watch his speeches like I did, if you watch them unedited, you see him making fun of himself in front yeah. of the crowd. He's like... He's like, oh, I gotta fix my hair. He's like, you know, and he makes fun of his own hair. He's and self-aware. He's self-aware. He's he is so self-aware. self-aware. Yeah. And he doesn't take himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And you know, it really and, and that's what makes him elite, but not elitist. Exactly. That's the thing. You've got a lot of people who are elitists. You there are people who are not elite, but they are elitists. And they and they yeah. they can't see it in themselves. They can't see yeah. it. It's like it's like there's a mirror, but they step in front of it and they don't see any they don't see any reflection. Um, you get that the same thing in the UK, you get these people like they, especially when you get these people, like in the U S it's primarily coastal cities. Um, in the UK, it's primarily London and they've just got such a, yeah, such a narrow worldview. And I mean, if you look at who the progressives inverted commas actually are, they do tend to be very affluent white college educated people from urban areas primarily right like those are actually the people and they like to claim that they're speaking for the working class or that they're really in touch with the working class or something and i'm like you are you're not i'm not even from that background and i am in much better touch with those people than you are and i can tell it because well one you keep losing elections but (laughs) two like the like the stuff that you're promoting and pushing i'm like look that's not even what that's not what people want that's not what people care about yeah and this is exactly why i get so frustrated when hollywood chimes in because you want to talk about elitist you know you've got (laughs) people like 
Chrissy Teigen and Rose McGowan. And I'm like, you have, you are so elitist. You have no idea how elitist you are. You travel on private jets. You live in a gated community, not community. You live in a gate around your house. You have a personal assistant to pick up Mm -hmm. all of your stuff and do all of your errands for you. Probably don't even pay your own bills. I mean, you are so far removed from what everyday life is like. The fact that you are trying to tell us how to vote and that you're trying to tell us what to think is so demeaning and so out of touch. And I think it's really insulting that Mm. the media expects us to listen to celebrities. Why? Because they have a lot of money. What's their skill set? Why should should we listen to them? It's literally because they're rich and famous. And that's so insulting. Yeah. They may make a living pretending to be another person. So may as well carry it on. I mean, from from my private jet with my armed guards, let me lecture you about climate change and why guns are bad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We have a whole team of armed security. <laughs> that, that's, those, ones, those are the ones I love. It's like you're on a private jet, like giving talks on climate change. Yeah, I do. I do think that we're we're starting to see a shift. Mm. I mean, more broadly, I mean, at least I hope we are. I think I think people are really waking up, mm. you know, and I think that we're really seeing that everything contradicts itself. And then even more than that, I think we're starting to see that the left, its entire platform, rests on moral relativity. Mm-hmm. Is, is, you know, there's no such thing as right and wrong. I mean, the left hates boundaries. The left hates the idea that there's black and white, there's right and wrong. But the fact is, that's, that's what life is. Mm. There is a right and a wrong. Yeah. And there are winners and losers. But as, as soon as you, you try to prescribe, oh, well, you know, this might be right for one person, but it might not be right for you. Mm. Being obese, it's okay for you. It's okay for you, but, but, I, but I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to hire a trainer and I'm going to eat really well. Oh yeah. And, and that brings me back to writing about body positivity. When I was a, an editor and a writer, I wrote so much content about body positivity. And I remember looking around the room one day thinking to myself, every single person writing about body positivity is thin. Of they course. go to soul cycle, of they course. eat organic food, they have a quinoa salad for lunch and, and you're telling obese people mm-hmm. to be obese. Mm-hmm. And, and same thing when it comes to marriage and abortion, right? All the people in their ivory towers, they all get married before they have kids. Mm-hmm. And when they get pregnant, they have their children. Mm-hmm. But they're going to tell everyone else, you don't need to get married. Marriage is an outdated system. Mm-hmm. And if you get pregnant, you don't want to have it. You just have an abortion. But they're doing everything different than what they're prescribing. And I think people are really starting to see that. And they're starting to see the, the deep hypocrisy that really lies there and that's going to destroy our society if we don't, if we don't stop it in its tracks. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the people doing the, doing the oppression are not those who uh, people thought they were. Surprise. <laughs> Turns out the people pushing policies that hurt women and hurt black people and hurt yep. people of, you know, all these different groups they're not the ones you necessarily think they are yeah and um yeah uh, I'm, I'm i'm glad i'm glad you've seen it i'm glad you've seen it um <laughs> so glad i'm back I'm, on the same I'm, side i'm glad you've seen it you know back in like the the i don't know what year are we now we're in 2020 now gosh like you know i used to have conversations like this in 2008 and 2009 and wow. i was like man maybe i'm maybe i'm the crazy one for like seeing through this matrix but um Cause, and it, it's, it's also what I've experienced as well myself. It's always what I've experienced. Like even in terms of like, I've experienced very little racism in my life, but I would kind of say the most common type of racism I've ever experienced would be the bigotry of low expectations style yes. of racism, right? It's not someone yeah. calling me an N-word or saying something horrible or mean. It's this idea of like, 
oh, I'm going to assume you're oppressed or I'm going to assume I know your beliefs because you're a black guy. So I'm just going to assume you believe this. I'm going to assume you, but I'm like, I'll get in conversations with people. And sometimes, sometimes I'll let them, I'll let them run their mouth for a little bit. And then I'm like, oh no, actually like, I remember getting in a, in a whole conversation with someone and they were, they assumed I was a descendant of slaves and they were like just talking about all this stuff and how I, as a defendant, descendant of slaves, like I was this and oppression that and whatever. And I was like, uh, dude, I'm not, I didn't descend from slaves. Like I'm, I'm a son of Nigerian immigrants. Like <laughs> my, my ancestors were, were not enslaved. I'm not oppressed. My dad is a medical doctor. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't know. The dude looked like he wanted the ground to just like swallow him. Cause I was yeah. just, and it, and it like, he just assumed all of this stuff and you're just like, um, uh, and then there was someone else. Um, it was someone else who was basically talking to me about some, it was some kind of affirmative action or something. And he was there talking about, you know, yeah, we need to do this to, you know, get more black people into this and that and whatever. Cause he, again, he just assumed that I thought mm-hmm. affirmative action was a good idea. Yeah, of course. And, and I was like, and I'm very opposed, I'm very opposed to race-based affirmative action. And so I kind of like let him go. And then it was like, okay, well, this is what I think. And you just see like their face kind of like, ooh. (laughs) 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 This this was not their response. Like, cause they're they're thinking I'd be like, yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Like, yeah, Yeah. you know, you're one of the good ones. And I was like, nah, that's, that's kind of racist, man. Like you shouldn't judge me. Yeah, you know, it's the, the bigotry of low expectations. I love that. And this is yeah. what Candace talks about all the time. Yeah. And she gets slammed for it. She mm-hmm. says, it's insulting to think that we need handouts from the government to, to survive and thrive. Yeah. It's insulting that, that you think that requiring an ID to vote oh, is, is somehow oppressive. But Candace had Hawk Newsom on her show, I think last year, you know, one of the... I watched that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one where, you know, he got so upset about this voter ID suppression. Right. And Candace looked at him. She said, what black person do you know doesn't have an ID? You know, and that's what what sparked the whole conversation. And it's really, you know, it's gotta be insulting to hear that. You think that you're not capable of getting an ID to vote. Why why would you not have, I mean, how can you be, how can you function function? in society without some form of identification? How do you have a, bank account or a, a gym membership or any anything a job a, dri- a, dri- a driving license a job yeah. like i don't i don't i don't know but yeah yo gina um this conversation i feel like we we could go for we could go for hours um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um i don't want to i don't want to make this podcast go forever so why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you online Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's funny. I actually deleted my last account, but started a new one in July. <laughs> <laughs> it's at Florio Gina. Okay. Uh, and then I'm also pretty active on Instagram. Uh, that's at GM Florio. So Twitter and Instagram are my two places. That's where you can definitely find me. Give me a shout out. Awesome. Gina Florio, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Zuby. I really appreciate it. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.